Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, They don't have any wine. Jesus replied, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My time hasn't come yet. His mother told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish cleansing ritual, each able to hold about 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw water, or now draw from some of them, and take it to the head waiter. And they did. The head waiter tasted the water that has become wine. He didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the groom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first. They bring out the second-rate wine only when the guests are drinking freely. You kept the good wine until now. This was the first miraculous sign that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest as the rest of us are seated. Open your Bibles, if you would, uh, to John chapter 2, which, if you're using the Bible under your seat, is page 887. This morning, we're beginning a new sermon series called Seven Psalms, Seven Signs, that will carry us through the summer. And uh, the idea is that we're taking time to focus on the signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John, which are works that he does that reveal his glory, that reveal God's involvement with us, and taking time to meditate on seven psalms, which is language that God gives us to pray to him, language God gives us to get involved with him. And so we'll alternate God's involvement with us through Jesus Christ in the signs of John and our involvement with God through Jesus Christ, through the Psalms. So that will carry us through summer. I think it will be a wonderful series. I, I want you to imagine uh, that you sit down with a friend for coffee, and you're talking about your life and what's going on. You're talking about what you're watching on television. And your friend pauses, and they ask you, how is your relationship with God? I know we don't always talk about this, but I think, I, I just wonder, how is your relationship with God? And as you think about how to answer the question, you, you, we tend to think really personally and individually about this question, right? Am I reading the Bible? And what has that been like? Am I praying? And what, what has that been like? Do I feel God's closeness to me? Do I feel close to God? And so on and so on. We just, we think about that question very personally and individually. It's just what we've learned to do. Um, I want to take that question, how is your relationship with God, and for us to think about it communally 
and corporately. And actually, we've been in a season where we have been thinking about this communally and corporately, reading life together, doing a congregational assessment, trying to learn how our relationship to God together is. Because sometimes, on an individual, personal level, you can feel like your relationship with God has meaning, it's vital and vibrant. But on a corporate communal level, we can feel a little bit empty, a little bit depleted, a little bit exhausted. Uh, we know we have work to do, but we don't quite know how to do that work together. Or what is the vision for our relationship with God, for God's relationship with his people? Well, one image for God's relationship with us is marriage. Weddings are supposed to reflect God's mutual, delightful, intimate love with his people and our love with God. Jesus shows up at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and we wonder, is, is this the moment when God will finally be one with his people? Because in the Old Testament, uh, we see God pursue his people with all the passion and devotion of a Shakespearean lover. And the language God uses with his people is, is astonishing. It's so intimate that sometimes it's almost embarrassing for us to read. It's, um, it's almost, well, let's just say this. There's a whole book in the Old Testament, the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, and to this day, we still really don't know whether it's about God's intimate, delightful love with his people or about sex, sensual love between a man and woman. And you might think, well, maybe it's both. And if it is, that, that's really revealing, isn't it? A more, a more heart-wrenching example of, of God's love with his people from the Old Testament is from the prophet Hosea. God speaks to Hosea at a time that Israel is being unfaithful. Israel is worshiping idols. It's like adultery with the Lord. And God plays, plays the role of the forlorn lover. Um, and there's this astonishing passage where um, God imagines that day when, when finally he and Israel will be reconciled and they'll be one. Uh, here's what Hosea says. Um, the, yes, thank you. On that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband. This is God speaking to Israel. No longer will you call me my Lord. I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice, in devoted love and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. I hope it won't make you too uncomfortable if I suggest that when God says, you will know the Lord, the language is not unlike Abraham knowing his wife, Sarah. It's, it's not just head knowledge. Sometimes people in the time of Jesus, as they imagined the salvation that God would work among God's people, they imagined God finally arriving as, as husband and spreading out a great wedding feast. And it would be the moment that 
God's love with his people was finally at its fullest, that God and his people would finally be fully one, that there'd be mutuality and difference and delight and intimacy. And when we come to the Gospel of John, we see Jesus arrives at a wedding. And Jesus is later called the groom by John the Baptist in John, in John's Gospel, that is. And so we wonder, has the wedding feast of God and his people finally arrived? Now, I do want to pause for a moment and say that marriage is not the only image that God has given us to think about what our relationship with him is like. And this is especially important for you to realize if if you're a married person. Uh, Marriage is, is not sort of the normal kind of love that every other kind of human love is considered different or other. Um, It just can't be that way because Jesus was never married. (laughs) He was celibate. Same with St. Paul. Singleness and celibacy are are loves that God has given to us that us that show us the dynamic of our love with God that stays at the threshold of longing. It's love characterized by yearning, um, lo- the, the love of unfulfilled desire. Um, if, if you are single in the church, it, it might not always feel like a gift to you, but you are a gift to the church because you show us what God's longing love for us is like and what our yearning love toward God is like. And in a similar way, marriage is given. is a love that reflects to us God's intimate, delightful love with us and ours with God. Jesus goes to a wedding and we're filled with expectation. But when Jesus goes to this wedding in Cana, the wine runs out. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2, verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, of any wedding ever to happen anywhere, Surely the wedding between God and his people should be more magnificent and spectacular than the royal wedding, right? Uh, It should be of any wedding characterized with the most abundant life and laughter and dancing and music and wine. A wedding without wine just is not a wedding in the ancient world. And that's because of what wine meant. Um, Now, some of the wise people of Israel spoke about wine, and, and they first warn that if, if you drink too much wine, it can absolutely wreck you. And that's like a symbol of how our addiction to sin, whatever that sin might be, can just absolutely destroy our lives. But almost in the same breath, they say this about wine. Next slide, please. Wine is very life to human beings. What is life to one who is without wine? It has been created to make people happy. Wine drunk at the proper time and in moderation 
is rejoicing of heart and gladness of soul. These are wonderful words. God created wine to make us happy. It shows us abundant life and gladness of heart and rejoicing of soul. Given, well, but at this wedding, the wine runs out. It's empty, it's depleted, it's gone, it's no more. And given that weddings are supposed to reflect the intimate love of God with his people, and wine is supposed to reflect God's abundant life and and joy and gladness with us, surely it means something that at this wedding, the wine runs out. What does that mean? Now, we first need to realize we don't know why the wine ran out. The gospel doesn't tell us why the wine ran out. We could speculate. We could, we could wonder, well, maybe it was, it was because of sin. Maybe one person drank all of the wine, or, or the wedding couple was too stingy to buy wine for all these other people. They wanted to go on a nicer honeymoon for themselves. Or, or maybe they were sinned against. Maybe there was a couple getting married down the road, and they pull an Ocean's Eleven-style heist and steal all the wine from the Cana wedding. Uh, should have hired a security guard, right? Or, or maybe it was calamity. Maybe this couple scrimped and saved to buy wine for their wedding, and Uncle Jerry leans over and just tips it over and dumps it all out. Jerry. Typical Jerry. <laughs> the point is, we don't know why the wine ran out. Sometimes the wine just runs out. And maybe what this means is that our relationship with God together is not always a wedding feast. It's not always characterized by abundant life, gladness of soul, and rejoicing of heart. Sometimes there really is emptiness, depletion, and exhaustion. And we don't know why. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's that we're sinned against. Maybe it's calamity. We aren't immune from from outside forces. But sometimes we find ourselves depleted even with Jesus in our midst. Sometimes Jesus goes to the wedding and the wine runs out. So what does Jesus do in response? Well, at first, Jesus does nothing. Look at at verse 4, if you would. Jesus' mother observes to him, they have no wine. And Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. this This is a really puzzling response, isn't it? Because we know just how far Jesus the lover will go to pursue the beloved. And we know that at the end of the story, Jesus is going to make water wine. This response is puzzling. My hour has not yet come. It's at least, it's worth realizing what what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't judge the couple. He doesn't blame them. He doesn't condemn them. Uh, He doesn't say, well, if I were in charge, I would have hired that security guard, right? Um, But even so, my hour has not yet come is a difficult response for us to hear. 
Lord, we don't know if we have enough to go on. We don't know if we have enough time, if we have enough resources, if we have enough love or energy. My hour has not yet come. Lord, we don't, we don't totally know who we are or how to work out our salvation in here and now. Please show us. My hour has not yet come. This is sort of like the moment in a love story where you're worried that this budding romance is going to end in just complete and utter heartbreak. I heard a story recently of, of a man and woman who met while they were on vacation in the Swiss Alps in, in the 1950s. And they begin falling in love immediately. And to their delight, they discover they both live in London. And six weeks later, the man visits the woman's parents' home, and she's there, and their parents are there, and they're, they're drinking tea, as British people do. When her parents, for no real good reason, stand up and, and they walk out of the room. And so the man bends down on one knee and pulls out a ring and says, Ruth, my dear, will you marry me? Yes, she says. But, and at this suspenseful moment, the doorbell rings. It turns out the neighbors had seen this nice young man knock on their neighbor's door, and then they saw them, him alone in the room with this woman. They were so curious as to what was going on. It took 30 agonizing minutes to, to please them with enough platitudes to ease their curiosity and get them to go away. As soon as the door shuts, I mean, the man has been beside himself the whole time. As soon as the door shuts, he turns to Ruth and says, Well? And she says to him, Well, what? And he says, You said, yes, but. What was the but? And she, she pauses and thinks for a second and says, I don't remember. <laughs> Sometimes Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, and we are waiting. And the waiting is agony. It's excruciating. And in our waiting, in the meantime... Jesus gives those who serve him something to do. Jesus gives us something to do. He gives us words to follow and observe. Now, when I say that, I want to be clear. I don't mean to, to suggest that God has left us on our own and says, all right, you all, you have some work to do, you know, before, before we follow through with, with this whole thing. So, so just try to perfect yourselves for a while. Um, he's, not, he's not saying, you know... Uh, I was kind of hoping you'd have a little bit more faithfulness, and so you need to work on that, muster up more faith, and then, I'll, then I will come to you and bless you. It's not that. God has given us words to follow and observe, to teach us how to live together, and how to love one another in such a way that reflects God's intimate, joyful love with us and that we have with him. God's gift, because we are in Christ, God's law is a gift to us. It's not a curse. It's not, um, God doesn't give us his word as, as sort of like 
a divine gotcha moment. Um, at its best, the law helps us live the gospel. And that's why uh, Jesus tells those who serve him, I'm looking at verses 6 and 7 now, that Jesus tells those who serve him to fill up these stone jars meant for the purification of the Jews with water. Um, the purification was a gift of God to Israel. It, it was the way that Israel, uh, it was the way that God gave to Israel to prepare to worship God, to prepare to see God's glory. Um, it's, it's as though these stone jars for purification represent the very best out of God's law. This is the psalmist, the very first psalm, the psalm, psalmist says, blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. It's as if Jesus is saying to those who serve him, yes, the wine has run out, the emptiness and depletion are real, but remember what God has told you. Observe his words. Were Jesus to speak to us now, as he has in the Gospel of John, he might say, in your waiting, in the meantime, love one another as I have loved you. Gather together and let my word in Scripture, let my word abide in you so that you can abide in me. Pray together in my name to the Father and know that the Father hears you. Worship me together in spirit and in truth. Together serve those in need, wash their feet, and expect to receive the blessing that the Father has for you through that. Fill the stone jars full with water. Fill them full with water. Now, it is worth observing, again, this is a really strange thing for, for Jesus to say at this moment, because, well, if you're serving him, you might say, that's great, Jesus, but people aren't looking to wash their hands right now. There's a shortage of wine, and we're at a wedding. It's, it's time to, to have wine. And it's not always clear to us why, how, how the words of God will relate to what we see as most needful in the moment. But we do well to, to listen to what Jesus' mother says. Verse 5, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And wonder of wonders, Jesus takes the little faithfulness that we have and makes it into the best wine. Um, God sees that the wine has run out. He sees emptiness, depletion, and exhaustion. And he provides abundant life, joy of heart, gladness of soul, even now. God gives beyond what we can give. God's gift exceeds what we could ever give. And we don't always see that. Sometimes we become entrapped in our own world. Sometimes we think the only reality is that the wine has run out. The only reality is our emptiness and, and exhaustion and depletion. Um, we, we begin to think that it's all up to us. The only thing that counts is what we can do or what we can make of ourselves. 
And we despair at that because each one of us knows that what is needed is more than we can give. And all of us together, I think, have a sense that what is needed is more than we can give. And so we try to live faithfully to God as though God doesn't exist. We try to live faithfully to God as though God doesn't really exist. We imagine that really we're on our own and we'll always be waiting and working for a God that doesn't really notice or care. But then we discover that Jesus makes water wine. And not just a little bit of water, but an abundance of water into an abundance of wine. And not just okay wine, not two buck chuck, but the very best wine. Look at verses, um, uh, starting in verse 8. Jesus tells those who are serving him, um, draw some water out. And take it to the master of the feast. And they take it to the master of the feast. And when he takes this cup of water and brings it to his lips and tastes it, it's the best wine. He's puzzled, actually, as to why this wasn't the wine that was served first. He almost rebukes the the groom. He's like, why didn't you bring this one out first? It's so much better. That's what everybody does. Jesus gives us the best wine now. In the water become wine, what we discover is that it's not all up to us. Yes, we are involved with God together, but more importantly, God is involved with us. The name for God's involvement with us is grace. Grace. John tells us that the law came through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. From his fullness, we have all received grace overflowing with grace. And if that's not the reality that we're living in, we better rename this church. Perhaps we should call it Despair Brethren Church of Long Beach. But the reality is, that all is grace. Our lives together are shot through with God's grace, with God's love for us, with his compassion to us, with his glory and life. Even our own little acts of faithfulness are not our own. God supplies us with faith and then makes our faith into the best wine. Emptiness and depletion are real, but so is God's grace, life, and glory. I, I met somebody earlier this year who was from a church in Seattle called Rainer Avenue Church. It's a church that, like ours, is 100 years old. And he was telling me about a season that church went through of emptiness, of depletion, and exhaustion in the 1960s and 1970s. 
At that point, Seattle was changing radically. The neighborhood this church was in was changing radically economically and demographically. After America's war in Vietnam, an influx of refugees moved into this neighborhood from Southeast Asia. And these were the kinds of factors that contributed to what some people call white flight, And so many people in this congregation had moved away and stopped attending. Others were on their way out. Uh, The denomination was considering closing the church, depletion, emptiness. But there were just a few families who thought, we need to stay in the neighborhood. We need to be a faithful presence. We need to bear witness to God's gospel of grace. And when an organization called World Relief contacted the church uh, to see if the church would help Uh, support, sponsor, and welcome refugees, one of the families said yes. And there's a family from Laos who started coming to the church, and then they brought more families. And 50 years later, Rainer Avenue Church is a vibrant, worshiping community of um, full of life uh, that reflects its neighborhood and reflects the gospel of grace. God takes little acts of faithfulness and makes it wine. All all of this, John tells us, all of this is a sign that reveals the glory of Jesus to his disciples. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And revealed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. Now, the point is not that what Jesus did was a miracle. A miracle is something that can't naturally be explained, and of course, water instantaneously being wine is that. But it's called a sign, and the point of a sign is that it points beyond itself. Signs point to something beyond themselves, and so we wonder, What does this sign of Jesus signify? What does water becoming wine point to? And there's two hints in the text. Um, When Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, and that this sign revealed his glory. Hour and glory. In the Gospel of John, Jesus' hour and his glory are one in the same moment. And that is the cross and resurrection. In the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, John's gospel tells us we see the glory of God. And what, what, so what Jesus is, is thinking of when he says, my hour has not yet come, is that moment, his cross and resurrection. It's as though in that moment he's brooding over his death, What will it take to make the wedding of God and his people really happen? And the water becoming wine as a sign of cross and resurrection shows us that what cross and resurrection are finally about is the revealing of God's glory and abundant life and rejoicing of soul. It shows us that Jesus empties himself so that we can be full of God's love and grace. He pours out his life so that we can be filled with the very life of God. 
The wedding feast of God and his people is not yet. That hour has not yet come. We live in the meantime. But Jesus makes present his grace and his love now. That's what water becoming wine means. Do you want to see the glory of God? Look at Jesus. Are you longing for the glory? Look for cross and resurrection. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Taste the water become wine, a foretaste of God's eternal life with us. Emptiness and depletion are real, but they aren't ultimate. We may see the glory of Jesus in the water become wine, but we need also to see something else. We need to see the name that God has given to us, a name that is the reality in which we live if we can only trust Jesus. And that name is grace. Thanks be to God.